Bibles tonight to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24. We are going through the Bible, and we are in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24. Um, And if you need a Bible, you can just lift up your hand and make eye contact with the ushers as they walk up and down the aisles, and they will bring a Bible to you so that you can follow along with us in our Bible study tonight. Lord willing, we will get through three chapters. (laughs) On time. I should add that, right? H. Jackson Brown, in sending his teenage son Adam off to college, sought to send him with a gift. And so he compiled a list of 511 quotes and little pithy instructions, things that he had learned along the way and picked up. And he put them together in a booklet to send off with his son as he was going off to school. That booklet became a number one bestseller for a full year on the New York Times bestseller list and was on that list for three years. You might have heard of it. It's Life's Little Instruction Booklet. And it was a series of non-interconnected things that were just tidbits of wisdom, instructions from this father to a young man about to launch off into the world. Well, as we study the book of Deuteronomy, it's with much similar sentiment to that, that Moses is now writing to the entire congregation of the children of Israel. A spiritual father, if you would, communicating to his sons and daughters who are about to launch into their destiny in order to equip and prepare them for what's coming in their lives and for their future. So as we come to chapter 24 and all the way through chapter 26, the exhortations, the instructions, the precepts that are given by Moses reflect very much those of life's little instruction booklet. You say, what do do you mean? Here's what I mean. Is that they are very non-interconnected. In other words, he jumps from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, and there really isn't much of a common thread, you know, that links one exhortation to the next. It's just a series of things that aren't really related. And so it's a lot like Proverbs, so to speak. And so you'll find that we jump quickly from topic to topic to topic as we move through these chapters. But we are winding down towards the end of Moses' second sermon. You recall that Deuteronomy is a series of sermons delivered by Moses at the end of his life to this congregation about to go forward. And and he's winding down now. We will finish the middle content of his sermon this week, and then we'll catch his application and his close of his second sermon in our study next week. And so uh, it, it's almost as though now he, he's, he sees the clock, he knows his time is up, he's gone way over, and so he's just squeezing in all of these things that he's got to say to them that they need to hear, inspired by the Spirit of God. And so we pick up in chapter 24, verse 1, with a very uplifting topic. Uh, well, let's see. Chapter 24, verse 1. It says, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, 
and give it into her hand and send her out of his house. And so he begins to deal with the topic of divorce. And as you can imagine, there was an you know, was for many years a great debate over this verse amongst the Jewish people. And that debate centered around the words, some uncleanness that you see there in the middle of the verse. Well, that's a very broad brush, isn't it? I mean, Moses, you're kind of painting with a broom on that one. You know, when you say some uncleanness, could you be a little bit more specific? And so, obviously, the natural fallout of the broadness of that statement is that there was a division about the interpretation of it. What does it mean, some uncleanness, when he says that? Well, there was a conservative group of Jews that held fast that uncleanness was strictly sexual in nature. That either she was found to not be a virgin on their wedding night, which was a serious issue in in that time, in in, in biblical things, to the Lord, it was important, you know. Or there was an instance of adultery, you know, and there was some kind of sexual uh, thing going on outside the marriage, and that, that was what uncleanness spoke of. That was the conservative side. However, there was also a liberal side of the argument. And the liberal side of the argument maintained that some uncleanness was anything that the man deemed to be unclean. If he, if she burned his eggs in the morning, and and this is true, like he would write her, he could write her a bill of divorcement that literally for any reason that he deemed her to be unclean, he could just simply write a bill of divorce. And all he had to do was pronounce three times and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Uh, write her a, a little thing and then send her out of his house. And so there was obvious reason for debate about what this means. Now, the debate about this carried even into the days of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, the religious establishment of Jesus' day sought to drag him into the argument and take sides. And so they came to Jesus, Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, it says that the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? In other words, does uncleanness mean every cause, whatever it is that he wants, burned eggs, you know, uh, dirty laundry. Can he put her away for any reason? And so Jesus answers, and here's his answers, Jesus' doctrine on divorce, expanding on Moses, of course. It says, and he answered and he said unto them, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother, And shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. So Jesus basically is saying to them that God never intended divorce to be even an issue, an object, an reason for debate at all that 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 god joined the two together and so therefore there shouldn't be any divorce well they take that but they say no no verse seven and they said unto him why then did moses command 
to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away. How's that for manipulation? Moses commanded us to do this. We're, we're, not, we're not choosing. We're doing what Moses said to do. You know, we have to divorce them. He commanded us, they said. And so Jesus said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you, allowed you to put away your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, divorce is never God's will. It was never his intent, his intention, his desire, or in his plan that what has been joined together in covenant before God and before men should be separated. However, Jesus does say, verse 9, And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, that is, sexual uncleanness, and shall marry another, commits adultery. So Jesus essentially takes the side of the conservatives in the argument, saying that uncleanness is something that is sexual in uncleanness in nature, and and therefore he also gives to us, listen, the interpretation of the verse here in Deuteronomy. We know what it means because of what Jesus said. Jesus said what it means, and so therefore we know what it means. And so he says that that is the thing. Now, th- this is, there, there's something to consider in this when we think about the, 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 the um, circumstances that surrounded Mary and Joseph in the days that she was, uh, you know, with Jesus, holding Jesus in the womb. Think about what it would be like for a young woman that loved the Lord, that knew the word, that was part of Jewish society, and respectably so, what would it be like for her when the Lord comes to her and say, you're going to be with child of the Holy Ghost, and she knew in her heart that she was going to have to bear the reproach of the accusation that she was unfaithful to Joseph, that she didn't wait, and that she was with someone else, and she was willing to bear that because it was the will of God for her to bring forth the Messiah. Let it be so done unto the handmaiden of the Lord as my Lord has spoken unto me. Let it be done. And then think about how, what kind of a man Joseph was. That once he knew it, once he realized it, the Bible tells us that he sought to put her away privately, not seeking to bring shame upon her when she would be stoned, according to the law, killed. But it says that he wanted to do it in the most secretive way possible until, of course, the Lord intervened, came to Joseph and said, hey, this is legit what she's telling you, uh, and and convinced him so uh, that he took her. But but to consider what was at stake, what kind of people that these um, were in in this uh, thing. Well, he goes on in verse 2, and he, he then goes on after this. Well, now that you've written her the bill of divorce, she's gone from your house. Verse 2, it says, And when she is departed out of his house, she may go, and she may be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, so she's not doing too good, and write her a bill of divorcement, and giveth it in her hand, and send her out of his house, Or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled. For that is abomination before the Lord, and you shall not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. 
So you can do this, but you cannot now take the woman back after the fact and say, hey, you know what? She wasn't that bad. Uh, and, 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 and here's why. And here's why. Because God knew these people. God knows all men, doesn't he? And he knew that they would exploit this. See, because they exploited everything, didn't they? I mean, they took every chance they could to somehow keep the law and yet break the law. And so they would simply, you know, write a little note, I divorce you, you know, and, and then they would tuck it in the wife's bag, you know, in the thing. I gave her the writing of divorcement. She would leave the house and go to work. He would cheat. And then, you know, whatever. And then she would come home. He would take the note back and rep it up and say, oh, no, it's okay. We're back again. We're remarried. And he would say, no, I didn't cheat on my wife. We were divorced, you see. And God says, you can't do that. If you do this, it's final, it's permanent, it's forever. He knows us, he knew them. He says it can't be that way. Well, he goes on now in verse 5. Same thing, marriage, different uh, tone. He says, verse 5, he says, When a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? Here's why. And he shall cheer up his wife, which he hath taken. (laughs) That's great, isn't it? It's true, isn't it? I mean, I I was thinking about this when I read it, and I was like, wow, I didn't get to take a year off, but I did have to cheer up my wife, you know. I didn't know that, actually. I, I found out later. She told me, you know, after we had been married for five, six years, that she was disappointed. (laughs) <laughs> when we first got married. And, and the reason why she was disappointed is because, you know, and, and it was really just one thing. It's like she wanted to be outside. She loved hiking, biking, you know, all this kind of thing. You know, and, and my thing was that when I was home, I didn't want to be outside. I wanted to take a nap. I wanted to rest. I wanted to chill. And so she, she you know, she was like, oh, can't we go outside? And I'm like, oh, man, I've been working. I don't want to, you know, and this whole thing. She never complained about it. She told me years later, that once I was into hiking and biking and running, you know, all the things that, you know, she changed me without telling me, you know, and the whole thing. But here's the point why I share that. Because really, you don't know your spouse until you've been married for at least a year. Can I get an amen on that? It's so funny to watch young couples as they're engaged and and getting ready to launch into that part of their life. You know, they're so in love and they're so blind, You know, they're so happy and they're so stupid, you know. They're lying to each other. You know, he is making it like he's, you know, sanitary and that he picks up after himself and, you know, and that he's responsible and diligent. And she's making it like she's, you know, affectionate and into him and and all this kind. And they're just lying to each other, you know. And then the contract gets signed, the marriage license gets sent in, and then a week later it's like, Wait, you're going to you're going to leave that there? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, why not? I, you know, and then and then everything starts to come out, you know, and that's when the cheering up happens, you see. That's that. God knows, he knew, you know. And, and it's part of it's part of life. It's part of Christian development, maturity. It's part of learning how to be selfless and die and serve someone else, you know, all that kind of thing. You say, "All right, well you raise an interesting point in that." Well, then doesn't it make sense to live together before you're married? 
so that you can know the person a little bit better than you would if you were just, listen, listen, foolish, foolish. Here's why. Because marriage is ordained of God and marriage is blessed of God when you do it God's way. And so to say, well, for the sake of practicality, we're going to live together before we get married to make sure we're compatible before we work. What you're doing is you're dooming the marriage to failure before it starts because you're pushing the God of the marriage out, the one who joins the two together. I just read an article today that, listen to this, 25% of all houses sold, 25% of all houses sold are sold to unmarried couples. That's a current statistic. This statistic is also true today, that 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And the highest number amongst those 50% is in the age bracket of 20 to 30 years old. So for you to think, well, we're making a practical and wise decision by doing things contrary to God, you're actually, in fact, dooming the very thing that you're seeking God to bless and that you need God to bless. Do it God's way. It works so much better. It's so much wiser, you see. So he says that. Then verse 6, we're not on pace at all, but we'll get there. He says, no man shall take the nether nor the upper millstone to pledge, for he taketh a man's life to pledge. Now, the pledge was collateral. So if you were going to borrow money from someone and you needed to put something up for collateral, you weren't allowed to basically put your livelihood on the line. The millstone was what they would use to grind their bread, and they needed it to eat. And so you couldn't take that as collateral. You couldn't take someone's tools that they needed to work to make the money as collateral for your debt. It had to be something else. That's basically what he's saying. He says, if a man be found stealing any of his brethren of the children of Israel, talking about human trafficking, kidnapping, and maketh merchandise of him or selleth him, then that thief shall die and you shall put away evil from among you. So the penalty for human trafficking in Israel was death. I think that's a fitting penalty. I remember one time uh, when Rocky was maybe two. He it was maybe just a little bit older than Riley is now. And we were at the Danbury Fair Mall, and my dad was in town, and uh, Georgia was going to take Hosanna. Sarah wasn't born yet, and, and she was going to do something with Georgia's, some, maybe her mom or something. And I was with my dad, and she said, you've got Rocky. And I said, yeah, I got him. But I didn't hear a word she said. And so we start walking along. And after, you know, literally three, four minutes of walking through the mall, it clicked. It registered what Georgia said. And, and I turn around with like that panic, like, what, uh, what did I do? I'm so dumb. You know, I turn around and I see about 40 feet behind me. I see Georgia kneeling down with Rocky there. And, she, and I went back, you know, red faced. you know, she looked up at me. She said, the Lord told me that you didn't hear what I said. And she said, I followed and, and, you know, he was okay. But, but listen, I say that to say this is that there is nothing more terrifying, nothing more terrifying than the thought of losing a child in that situation. Like they're gone. They don't, you know, I, I, there, people ask me sometimes, does your wife ever get angry? Cause she's very docile, you know? And I said, one time, there, there's one time that she got angry at me. And it was on April Fool's Day. Uh, I, 
I went to A&P with Rocky again. He was probably not much older. He was a little older, actually, because we could communicate. And, and uh, I went to A&P, and I picked up the milk and whatever it was. And when we got back home, we lived in an apartment. The driveway was right outside the door. Um, I said to Rocky, I said, just wait here for a minute. <laughs> and he stayed in the car, do, you know, door open, don't worry, you know, we're <laughs> whatever. And, and I go in the house, whistling, whatever, I'm there for a minute. I go to the, she goes, where's Rocky? I go, what do you mean? I said, where? And then I, and then I literally, I went, and, and she bought it. It worked. You know, she thought I left him at the store, you know. <laughs> so she runs out, you know, and goes up, flies up to the car and sees Rocky. I come around the corner I'm laughing, dying laughing. I see her, boom. (laughs) I learned, I learned, you know. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) don't mess with the kids, you know. But that's the idea, that's the sentiment behind what God is saying here in terms of kidnapping, trafficking. So you do that, you die. You don't mess with mama's kids. Verse 8, he says, take heed in the plague of leprosy that you observe diligently and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you as I commanded them, so ye shall observe to do. Now, they were, in Numbers 14, specific instructions of what to do in the day that leprosy was healed. Now, leprosy is an incurable disease. It's a flesh-eating disease. It starts small, almost unrecognizable, a white flaky sore. But over time, that sore spreads, develops, and, you know, goes deeper. And and, and pretty soon it spreads throughout the whole body and it eats from the outside in like a cancer. And so leprosy in the Bible becomes a picture of sin. It's always likened unto sin because that's the way sin works. It starts small. It starts seemingly harmless, not a big deal. This isn't going to kill me. It's no, no, no tragedy. But not long after, it gets a little deeper. It spreads a little further. And after a while, you realize, wow, something stinks in my life. You know? And so leprosy becomes a type of sin, and leprosy is unhealable. You, you can't be cured from it. Just like sin cannot be healed by human means. It takes a work of God. And so the cleansing of a leper was something that was extremely rare. In fact, there's only one instance in the Old Testament where we read about a leper being cleansed, and that was in the case of Naaman, the Syrian, who was a soldier for Syria that came to Elisha, and Elisha said, go you know, dip in the river seven times. And, you know, you know the story. I don't have time to tell it. But he's healed of leprosy. It's the only time in the Old Testament someone's healed of leprosy until Jesus comes on the scene. In the ministry of Jesus, we see leprosy being healed. And this verse here in Deuteronomy, where he says, he points out, he takes the time to bring it to their attention, take heed, pay attention to this. Moses is saying, in the plague of leprosy, that you observe diligently and do according to all the priests, the Levites shall teach you as I commanded you. Why did he tell them this? Because it would be for them a sign when Jesus would come that he is the one that can put away sin. Not just leprosy, the incurable disease in the flesh, but sin, which is the incurable disease in the soul that separates man from God. 
And so he says, take heed. Now, it's an interesting read to go back in Numbers and read what they had to do in the plague of leprosy. It's a great picture of the cross, the blood, and the resurrection, the, the, the solution, really, for leprosy and for sin. And so he tells them, take heed to it. And then he adds this warning in verse 9. He says, remember what the Lord thy God did unto Miriam, by the way, after that you were come forth out of Egypt. Now, Miriam, what he's talking about, Miriam, Moses' sister, began to complain about Moses' leadership and some of the others that were with her. And when she did that, the Bible says that she was smitten with leprosy. And the Lord said, heal her now. Actually, I'm wrong about the only time it was cured. It was cured once before Moses said this and once after. You know, the Lord said, or Moses said, heal her now. And the Lord said, all right, I'll heal her, but make her go outside the camp for seven days and, and she's going to learn the lesson. You say, well, what's the lesson and why does he bring it up here? And here, here's very practical for you and for me. Is be careful that you don't get consumed in a bitter spirit over political situations. She didn't like the way the government was running. And so she began to murmur, complain, and something began to eat at her inside. And the leprosy was a form of it. And the reason I know that's true, well, first of all, biblically, but I've also tasted it myself. I used to drive in and out of the city daily, you know, hour and a half, one way in, two hours home. And, you know, you can only listen to so many Bible teachings before you're full, you know. And so I'd listen to talk radio. And you start to listen to some talk radio and hear some political commentary on things. And you know what can happen? It can start to eat at you. You can start to feel something. It starts small, but it goes deeper. And, and, and inside, you start to, you can really start, as a Christian called to loving people, you can really start to get mad at people, you get angry at people. You know, and, and there's a warning here. Be careful. Pay attention. Have knowledge of what's going on. Be grounded in truth and what's right, but don't let it become leprous to where it consumes you. A very real warning for you and for me. Verse 10, he says, when you do lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to fetch his pledge. That is the collateral for the debt. You shall stand abroad and the man to whom you do lend shall bring out the pledge abroad unto thee. He, you're to wait until he brings you the collateral or brings you the payment. And if the man be poor, you shall not sleep with his pledge. That is, if, if the man, all he can give you as collateral is the coat off his back, at the end of the day, give it back to him. Take it again in the morning if you, if you, if you still need it as collateral, but be, be gracious. In any case, you shall deliver him the pledge again when the sun goeth down, that he may sleep in his own clothing and bless thee, and it shall be righteousness unto thee before the Lord thy God. The exhortation is don't be stingy. Don't be hardened about this type of thing, but show kindness, show mercy, show compassion, and help each other. That's what he's saying to them. You shall not oppress a hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates. But at his day you shall give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor. And he setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. In other words, if a man, a poor man, works for you for the day, at the end of the day, pay him. 
Don't wait. Don't withhold it. Don't say, hey, the check is in the mail or I'll pay you when they pay me. Don't do that. Just you pay him. You pay him at the time that he works. That's what you're to do. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, if you have an agreement with someone, you can't write them a weekly paycheck. That's not the point. The point is don't withhold someone's wages. Verse 16 is regarding personal accountability. He says, the fathers shall not be put to death for the children. Neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Now, if someone committed a crime that was capital, they murdered someone in your family, the the law allowed and demanded that you would be killed in return. It was revenge killing, you know. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, stroke for stroke, blow for blow, life for life. And, and if for some reason, you know, you killed my brother or something, and, and it's my duty for family honor to come now and take your life, which, by the way, is not valid in New Testament times, but in their times it was, and I can't find you, then my natural inclination is going to be, well, if I can't find you, then I'm going after your family. If I can't find you, then I'm going to take your father, or I'm going to take another one of the brothers, or I'm going to take someone else. And Moses is saying, no, you can't do that. If someone is worthy of death, they die, not their father or their brother or someone else. You can't just kill whoever you can get your hands on because you need satisfaction kind of a thing. Now, that's a practical instruction, but it also carries with it a spiritual implication, a spiritual application for you and I. What is that? In Ezekiel chapter 18, God speaks to his people and he says this. He says, I never want to hear this proverb again amongst you. I never want to hear you. There's never going to be an occasion for you to use this proverb again. He says, our fathers have eaten sour grapes, therefore our teeth are set on edge. In other words, we're being judged Because of the sins of our fathers. The gavel has come down in our lives and we're experiencing the wrath of God because of something that grandpa did. He was a witch. He was a pharma, you know, pharmacia, drug user. Or he was a human trafficker. And so therefore the judgment of God has come down in my life. God says, I don't want to hear that. And that's the sentiment behind what Moses is saying here is that that every man will pay for his own sin. I talk to people sometimes, they say, well, the reason I have these problems is because I have a generational curse upon my life. Because my grandmother was this, or because my mother was an alcoholic, or because whatever, that's why I'm like this. God says, you can't say that. Now, we all have sinful inclinations, and I believe those things do run in family lines. I learn more about my ancestors every day I live on this planet because I see what's in me. And I realize, wow, I come from a messed up bunch of people. But I've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Bible says that that same seal keeps Satan at bay and that he can't touch it. And so no one can ever come to me and say, well, you can't have victory over this sin or you can't have, you know, victory in this area of life because of what went on generations before you. No, 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 no. The power of the blood. The Bible says that Jesus is far above all principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age. 
At the end of the day, it comes down to this. Our dad can beat their dad. And he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And so don't let anybody tell you that you can't have victory over an area of your life because of something that happened in your ancestral past. He says, the fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Read Ezekiel chapter 18 if you need more on that. He's very clear, God. You shall not pervert the judgment of the stranger nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. Therefore, I command thee to do this thing. He's talking about justice, that when you come to justice or when you're involved in justice, make sure you mete out justice, that you're fair and honest in your sentences and in your uh, judgments. And then verse 19, and when you cut down the harvest in thy field and you have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless and for the widow that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thy hands. This was their welfare program. He says, when you beat thine olive tree, and you shall, he says, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And you shall remember that you were a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command thee to do this thing. That you were allowed to go over your field or over your vineyard or over your harvest once. But after that, whatever you couldn't gather in was to be left there for the poor, the fatherless, and the strangers. And that was the welfare system in Egypt. I mean, in Israel. And it made sense. Is that if you needed food and you wanted to eat, there was food for you to eat. Go get it. No one's going to bring it to your door. No one's going to mail it to you. No one's going to, you know, you can go and you can gather as much as you need of what's left over in the field. And they were commanded to leave it there. It made sense. That was the law. That's what they were supposed to do. Chapter 25, as he continues uh, with these random, uh, non-interconnected things, he says, if there be a controversy between men and they come unto judgment that the judges may judge them, Then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And it shall be if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face according to his fault by a certain number. Forty stripes he may give him and not exceed. Lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother should seem vile unto thee and so what he does is he sets forth the maximum number of stripes that could be laid upon a person if they were guilty of the furthest crime short of death and again it speaks to us of judgment and limitations in punishment and that they were to do this and they did this and because they wanted to see themselves as merciful they never went to number 40 They stopped at 39, just in case somebody miscounted. And that's why Jesus was whipped the 39 times with the flagellum. It's why Paul would later say, five times I was given the 40 stripes minus one, the 39 stripes, because that was how they would scourge. It's how they would elicit 
confessions, you know, it's how they would chastise and, and judge in these sorts of ways, you know, and so the, the limitation is set there, and he says it's to be done with justice, equality, and fairness. Uh, justice is to be blind. And then in verse 4, he says, you shall not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn. Now, we wouldn't know what this means, except the Apostle Paul tells us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul tells us there that this is speaking about wages. And specifically, contextually, what Paul is saying is as it concerns a minister. Um, you know, it's interesting that this is how God looks at ministers. He calls us oxen. And that's pretty good. We're dumb as an ox, you know, and we're about as useful as an ox. Uh, and that's not for much, you know. And that's that, but it's actually an excellent description of what someone who serves in the ministry is supposed to do. What does he mean by this, the ox that treads out the corn? What they would do is they would gather in their harvest onto the, these threshing floors. And, and then what they'd do is they'd take the oxen, and the oxen would just walk on it. They would just walk on this wheat or on these, uh, you know, husks of corn they would just walk on it for hours on end and what would happen is that the weight of that ox would crush the grain and it would separate the wheat from the chaff the corn from the husk that which is useful from that which is waste and then they would come in there with their threshing instruments and it would usually be in an open barn in a windy place and they would just throw it up in the air and the wind would come through and carry away the chaff And the grain, which was useful, would just drop to the ground. And they would do this until the chaff was gone. And then if there was more, they would bring the oxen back in. Hey, that's exactly what us Bible teachers do. That's what we do. Do you know what we do? Is we tread on the corn. We take the harvest, the wheat of God's word, and we trudge upon it. And we just grind it to powder. And we break it down. And we separate that which is useful from that which is not. That which needs to be said and brought forth to the surface versus that which is just, you know, space, take, you know, bringing us to that place. And it's separating, it's dividing, it's simplifying. And then it's letting the spirit breathe upon it, throwing it up to heaven, if you would. And letting the wind, the ruach, the spirit of God carry away everything that's useless and letting everything that needs to be spoken, brought forth, let that drop back down. And then there, there's your harvest, there it is. That's what we do. And that's what I do. That's how I prepare. I just trudge on it, trudge on it, trudge on it, break it, break it, break it, lift it up, let the wind carry it. And then whatever's left over, just give it. You say, boy, there's a lot left over when you, (laughs) hey, pray for me, you know, maybe I'm too light. But what's the point of this? The point is this, is that when someone works, and it's not just a minister, but it's anyone, he says, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. In other words, someone's working for you then feed them, take care of them. Make sure that that you're not muzzling them, that they are able to get what they need in the process of doing what they do. That's the point. Don't say, oh, I don't want to lose any of this grain, so I'm going to muzzle the ox so he can't eat while he's working. No, 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 no. Don't starve your workmen. Feed them. Let them eat. Verse 5. If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife, 
and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. Now, what this is, and it goes all the way up to verse 10, so we'll read the rest of the story here. What this is, is the law of the Leverite. And basically what that was is that if, let's say I was married, I'm married to Georgia, and something happens to me and I die before we have kids. The law of the Leverite was that if I have an unmarried brother, he's to take her as his wife and their firstborn son would be my offspring. They would give him my name and he would legally carry on my name so that my name wouldn't be blotted out from history. You know, <coughs> It's called the law of the Leverite or the law of the kinsman redeemer. That's what he's talking about. And then he elaborates, verse 6. He says, And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, you know, in other words, hey, you know, uh, I love you, bro, but um, we don't have the same taste in women and I don't want to marry her. Uh, He says, if if the man doesn't want to do it, he says, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then let the elders of his city call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, so shall it be done unto the man that will not build up his brother's house and his name shall be called in Israel the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. <laughs> now, you don't want that name. You know, I mean, take the woman. You don't want that name. But you say, okay, oh, great. Why, I mean, in, in this part of Deuteronomy, he's going through all this stuff. Why, why six verses on the law of the Leverite, the law of the kinsman redeemer? Because it has great significance. First of all, this isn't something that's new. We see this in the book of Genesis. We see it with the sons of Jacob. You recall that Judah had a son. And Judah gave his son to a woman uh, whose name was Tamar, and he died before they had children. And so Judah, being a faithful Jew, wanting to honor the name of his brother, you know, of his son, he, he gives the brother of the deceased to the woman. And guess what happens? He dies before they have kids. And so Tamar, the woman, comes to Judah and says, hey, you got a third son. Cough him up. And Judah goes, ah, uh, look, you killed two of them. <laughs> Why don't you wait till he gets a little bit older? And so he grows up. Judah doesn't come forth with the deal. She manipulates the thing. She ends up with the guy. It's a long story. You can go back and read it. It's rated R. That'll make you want to read it, but it's the Bible, so it'll bear fruit in your life. <laughs> But it's the law of the Leverite. We see it in the history, but we also see it in the future. And that's why it's so significant. When you get to the book of Ruth and you see this thing worked out with Boaz and Ruth and the law of the kinsman redeemer, you see this thing worked out, but you see it, listen, you see it pointing to Jesus. Why? Here's why. Because it's the law of the kinsman redeemer. In other words, it's the redemption of the deceased and their bloodline. The redemption of the deceased bloodline. 
What does that have to do with Jesus? Everything. Listen, Adam, who is the father of every man, woman, and child that ever lived, he died. In the day you eat of it, God said, you will surely die. And he ate of it. And in eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam passed death onto all men. And you and I are part of the deceased bloodline. We are born into sin. According to the law of the Leverite, redemption is possible. But it has to be a kinsman redeemer. It has to be a member of the same family. In order for redemption to legally take, it has to be a member of the same family. That's why Jesus Christ, fully God, but yet he had to be the seed of Adam. He had to be fully man in order for him to be the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, to fulfill the law of the Leverite and thus to redeem all of mankind. And so this law has great significance in the story of redemption and the reason why Jesus had to be fully man. Because without him being fully man, you and I cannot be redeemed. He couldn't have been an angel, like the Mormons tell us, like the cult suggests. He couldn't have been just a man who had fallen sinful blood. He had to be of a different, a different blood stock. That's the virgin birth. But yet he had to be fully man, the kinsman redeemer. And so Jesus, the one who fulfills the role of the husband's brother, so to speak, redeeming mankind. Verse 11. It says, when men strive together one with another and the wife... Oh, uh, I promised you that the, the R-rated stuff was over, except for this verse. Uh, when men strive together one with another and the wife of the one draweth near for to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smites him and putteth forth her hand and taketh him by the secrets, then shalt thou, or you shall cut off her hand and thine eye shall not pity her. Now, this is not because God has a heart for perverted men and that he wants them to be spared this type of uh, pain. You know, I'm glad this is there, but that's not the, the reason. I'm sure that there are some men that God would look at and say they need to be wounded in that way, you know. But, but that's not the point. The point is this, is that God cares about life and he cares about life continuing. And an injury that would stop the procreative ability of a man, that's serious to God. And so God says that that's to be what you're to do. And again, remember, this is under the law. I know this seems so heavy, so harsh, but wait till the end of the study. Verse 13, he says, Thou shalt not have in thy bag diverse weights, a great and a small, or a heavy and a light. You shall not have in thine house diverse measures, a great and a small. But you shall have perfect and just weights, a perfect and just measure shall you have, and that thy days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. For all that do such things and all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Now, what they would do, the dishonest in those days, and even the dishonest in these days, is that they would basically carry with them two different weights in their bags for commerce. And so when they would go to buy grain, they would pull out the heavy weight and they would put the heavy shekel on one side of the scale and then they, the, 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 the merchant would weigh out the grain to the person and when the scale balanced out, that was equal. And so the shekel then, but then that same man would take that, that grain, go back to his place and then he would sell it to someone else. 
But when he would sell it, then he would pull out the lightweight. It said one shekel, but he'd put it on the scale, begin to measure out, and it would be less. And God's saying, no, 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 you're not to do that. You're not to have diverse weights, diverse measures. It's supposed to be just, and it's supposed to be equal. And basically, the reason God puts behind it, he says, because I'm watching. Because you can't hide it from me. And though you might make something unjustly, though you might earn something or get something that you didn't righteously earn, I see it. And my blessing upon your substance and on your life is worth more than what you'll get through dishonest gain. And so God says, fear me, essentially. Don't give yourself to scams and, you know, different ways of trying to earn an easy dollar. But trust in me, do things right, and I will bless you. Verse 17, remember what Amalek did unto you, by the way, when you were come forth out of Egypt. How he met thee, by the way, and smote the hindmost of thee, the, 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 even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget it. Now the instance he's referring to is when the children of Israel left Mount Sinai, and they're traveling through, and, and, and all of a sudden... I'm sorry, they leave Egypt. They didn't even make it to Mount Sinai yet. They're coming out of Egypt, and Amalek, the Amalekites, come forth, and they try to wipe out Israel. They just want to destroy them completely. And the story is there. It's Exodus chapter 17. If you know the Bible at all, you know the story. It's the time when Moses was up on the hill. And when his hands were raised, Joshua and the Israelites prevailed. But when he got weary and his hands started to droop, Then Amalek would prevail. And so, you know, Aaron and Hur came and they propped up Moses' arms and they kept him up high and and, and Israel prevailed that day. But God said something at the end of that battle. He said about Amalek something different than he said about any other of Israel's enemies. He said this. He said, I will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. In other words, all of the other enemies are going to be exterminated. All of your other problems, all of the other issues in your life, all of those other enemies are going to be eliminated, gone completely, but not Amalek. I will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And Amalek becomes, in the Old Testament, a picture, an illustration of our flesh. See, every other enemy that we have, addictions, bondages, debts, problems, every other thing that we have as Christians, God's going to take care of it. It it, it might take some time. It might take some fight. It might take whatever, but God's going to eliminate. He's going to do those things. If you've been walking with the Lord, you can say amen to that. I know I can. But there's one enemy that we have that's different from all the others. It's this flesh. No matter what you do to it, if you give it a saltine cracker, it's going to rise up and assault you. (laughs) This flesh that we have, it doesn't fear God. Galatians says that that, that the spirit that's in us, the spirit of Christ, lusts to envy, and you have these two powers that work within you. You have the spirit of God, and you have your flesh. 
and it says that the two things are contrary one to another. In the Greek, it's entrenched, dug in, at war, at odds with each other. The flesh hates the things of the spirit. Selflessness. Ah! The cross. Ah! Sharing, giving. Oh, I hate it. That's the flesh, and it's entrenched. Unless, of course, there's something in it for me. If there's something in it for me, we can negotiate. You know, we'll come to the table and we'll talk about it. But just selfless, unconditional love. Ah, nothing. I don't want it. That's the flesh. The spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, meekness, kindness, temperance, self-control. Everything that's good and holy and virtuous and right and, and that we praise. That's the spirit. And the spirit looks at the flesh and the flesh looks at the spirit. And these two things are in us and they're at war. And you know that war if you're a Christian. And the flesh, listen, the flesh doesn't die until you die. When we get to heaven, that's when Paul says, oh, we get delivered. Wretched man, I praise God that I'll be delivered from this cursed flesh. Amalek keeps cropping up in Israel's history. They didn't eliminate him completely in the land. They were supposed to, just like you and I, were to crucify the flesh. And we think, oh, this is going to be over and done. But guess what happens a few generations later? Amalek crops up again. In the days of Saul, Amalek cropped up again. Saul didn't completely crucify Amalek, so Amalek continues on. In the days of Esther, Haman was an Agagite, an Amalekite. He comes back up again. And so from generation to generation, Amalek keeps coming back. The same experience that you and I have. Our flesh. Don't you just wish you could just get rid of it once and for all? Sometimes, right? No, no. It's evil, the flesh, you see. And so he says, put it to death. Put the flesh to death. Put it to death. But we have war with it from generation to generation. We, we can't go through 26, but here's what I'm going to do. I am going to tell you what chapter 26 is all about, give you the application points, and you can read the text on your own because we have to get into chapter 27 next week and we're out of time. Chapter, and that's actually good because this isn't an easy topic for, 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 for me. But uh, chapter 26 is all about the topic of giving. It's about the, the offering. And, and I didn't say this last time in chapter 12 when we talked about giving, and so I want to say it now, um, is that, you know, you guys know if you've been coming to church here for any period of time, we don't, we're not big on giving here at the church. I mean, we, you know, obviously we, we need you to give, you know, but we don't pass the plate. We don't harp on giving. It, it's just we, we understand the abuses and the problems uh, and, and the distastefulness of it. And, and, and furthermore, God's not broke. God's not in need. He's not hungry. If, if, if you don't give, this ministry is not going to fail. You know, none of those things uh, are, are the case. You know, as a church, God provides. We're satisfied. His grace is sufficient and, and, and all of that uh, type of thing. But when we come to it in the Bible, we're obligated to teach on it because it's biblical, because it's of the Lord. And so, you know, chapter 26 here, it talks about the offering. And here, here are the points. I'm not going to read you the text, but here are the points. And, and the first is, the first four verses is what they were to do. And that is that they were to give. They were to bring the first fruits of their increase unto the Lord. They were to be givers of it. And it defines it later in the chapter as the tithe, or the first 10%. Then in verses 5 through 9, he tells them why. And that's really the question. Because if God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, then why do I need to give? 
Because if he isn't dependent upon what I'm offering, I need it more than he does. So why, why do I give? Why do we give as Christians? And here's the answer, and you read it in the text, verses 5 through 9, because this is what you, you realize when you give or what you are to realize. Number one is that you came from nothing. You came from nothing. You were born into this world with nothing. And everything that you have from that point forward is given to you by the providence of God. It's all God's. You're in his kingdom. You belong to him. Furthermore, for you and me as Christians, if we're saved, we have been redeemed from bondage. Our souls have been saved. Our lives have been changed. We have been translated from darkness into light. And therefore, we're to remember that through the offering. And furthermore, on top of that, we live in the blessing of God. Is that he promises that he's going to provide, that he's going to take care of us. And so we're to give with that mentality, is that we came from nothing, we were redeemed from bondage, we live in the land of blessing. And then he just defines then in verses 10 uh, through 15 how we're to give. And this is important, and this spoke to me. Because, you know, we, I, I have to give. I can't get away with anything. Uh, you know, I serve the Lord. And so, you know, I go through these emotions just like you. It's like, Lord, do I really have to do this? And, and, and Lord, we really can't afford it right now. And, you know, we go through that. We all have that, that same struggle. But God says, and, and, and I say it because a lot of times for me, giving is like taking medicine. You know, and I don't have that gift. My wife does. She would give away our house. You know, and I have to constantly like, no, no, honey, please don't give away our house, you know. <laughs> but a lot of times I give and I give and I'm just being honest with you. I give like this. I give, I hold my breath. I plug my nose, my ears so I can't smell it, hear it, taste it. And I drop it in and I, cause, and I do it obediently. And, and I'm exaggerating a little. I, I do give cheerfully, you know, to, to some degree. But, but here's what God says, how we're to give. And you could read it in the verses, verses 12 through 15, is that we're to give with worship and rejoicing. We're to give worshipfully, consciously. We're to do it with rejoicing, gladly. Lord, I'm giving this to you because of what you've given to me. You're the initiator in this. You're the one that saved me out of bondage. And so, Lord, I'm giving this to you joyfully with with gratefulness of heart. We're to give consciously, verses 12 and 13. That is, we're to realize and think about what we're doing. Not blindly. Don't plug your nose, close your eyes. Okay, Lord, I'm going to do it because I'm No, No, but consciously think about what you're doing. Feel it, what it feels like to watch the numbers, you know, whatever. Do it on purpose that way. And then give diligently, verse 14. And check yourself. Did I spend the money that was supposed to be given to the Lord? Did I use it for something else on purpose, on accident, you know, kind of a thing? He says, check yourself, go through. We're to do it prayerfully and with hopefulness, verse 15. And then in verses 16 through 19, the fourth point on this thing, is this, very simply, because it's part of a relationship with God. What hasn't God given to us? The Bible says, He that spared not his only son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how much more will he not now freely give us all things? And he provides so richly for us. He takes care of us, and he says, in return, be a giver. Be a giver. Support the work of ministry. Help those that are in need of help financially. Be free to give and distribute. Paul said willing to distribute and communicate. And that's a Christian virtue. It's, it's the highest evidence that God is at work with your, in your life is when you can be set free from the covetousness of possessing all, all of what's you know, 
yours, quote unquote, you know. It's all his. And so it's part of relationship. Uh, and so that's chapter 26, and you can go through and read it on your own. And, you know, the musicians can come. We're way over time. I thank you so much for your patience in this. Uh, but as we close and as, as the musicians are coming, when I was 19 years old and I got saved, I had a lot of problems. You know, I, I didn't get saved when I was 30 or 40, so I didn't have, you know, the problems of my 20s or my 30s, but I did have the problems of my teens, you know. And so I got saved at 19, and I had issues, just issues, addictions, habits, problems, attitudes, lifestyles, uh, debts, thing, just issues, problems. And I remember those things greatly troubled me. Because here I am saved now, and these issues didn't just disappear. I thought they would. I, I got saved. I'm supposed to have peace all the time. I'm supposed to have joy, unspeakable and full of glory. I'm supposed to understand the love that passes now. And, 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 and yet I still had all these problems, these things happening. And, and I didn't know how God was going to take care of all of those things. I could list them. I could say, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. I don't know how you're going to do this. I don't know how you're going to do this. And, and, and you know what? I didn't know how, and they didn't disappear. But let me tell you what happened. They disappeared. They were gone. One day, years, a couple years later, four or five years, age 24, 25, I realized, hey, you know, all those things that I had listed that were problems, that were issues, are no longer problems. They're no longer, there's new ones. You know, things that were there that I didn't know about. But all of those things that I thought, God can never do this. How is he ever going to take care of it? He took care of it. You say, well, how did he do it? Let me, let me answer that question. I'm going to read you a verse from Mark chapter 4. Uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 26. This is what Jesus said. And I'm saying this for a reason. I'm not just talking here. It says that Jesus said, so is the kingdom of God. As if a man should cast seed into the ground. And should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade and then the ear, and after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. Jesus said, this is how it works in the kingdom of God. And every one of us, we have problems, we have issues, we have things we're facing, things we're dealing with. So how is God going to do this? Here's how he's going to do it. He sows the seed, he waters it, the sun rises, and the sun sets, and the sun rises, and the sun sets, and the seed is watered, and the soil is kept soft, and little thing. And you know what happens over time? You don't even know how it's happening. Things happen. Things grow in our lives. Fruit comes forth. Weeds die off. But it happens. You say, why are you saying this to us in overtime here in this Bible study? Here's why. Because we're studying Deuteronomy. And some of you are like, why are we studying Deuteronomy? I mean, this is so tedious. I mean, here we've been sitting for over an hour listening to law after law. We're not even under the law. Why are we? Here's why we're studying it. Because the precepts, the principles, the spiritual lessons, the things that God wants to sow into the soil of your soul through the things that are being spoken here is some of the most precious seed in all of the Bible in what it will bring forth within your life. Do you understand? And so as you and I are constantly cultivating this fruit of the Spirit by allowing the Word of God, the seed of the Word, to be planted in our heart and to allow the, the wind, the ruach, the Spirit to blow out the chaff in our life, 
we come into the fullness of his plan and his blessing for us. We watch things that we struggle with dissipate and disappear. We watch addictions, bondages, struggles, pain. We watch those things dissipate and go, and we see the, what's right and true and holy and lasting. We see those things come forth. So I commend you. I know it's tedious. We're going through it as fast as possible, but we want to get the most out of it. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you tonight for this Bible study. And we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our hearts as we study your word. For you said that your word would not return void but that it would accomplish that which you please, and it will prosper in the thing whereunto you sent it. And so we ask tonight, Lord, that you take the things that we heard and you would apply them to us, that we'd never forget, even if we forget with our mind, may it affect our heart and our feet and the way that we live, that we would be changed forever. And so we thank you for this promise that we have. And we ask you, Lord, that you would bless and be with each one of us as we go our way, and as we seek to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.